Does the name Elwood Edwards mean anything to you? It should. Though not a household name, he was a household voice. In October of 1989, Elwood Edwards' voice would start to appear in homes across America for well over a decade. Here was the phrase. Are you ready? Welcome, you've got mail. You heard it too in the actual voice. You didn't hear it in my voice, did you? This phrase defined an era. Nowadays, we are annoyed with email. We'll confess that. There's books written about worlds without email. But there was a time when the phrase, you've got mail, was exciting. Thrilling even. There was a a 90s rom-com made about the whole concept of you've got mail. For those of you young whippersnappers in the room, you don't know a world without 3, 4, or 5G internet. But there was a time when checking your email meant at least a 30-minute login process from your home computer. When I was a kid... With my first AOL email address, after that excruciatingly long dial-up process, there was nothing more satisfying than hearing, welcome, then there would be a long pause because it's still loading and you're waiting with anticipation and then you'd finally hear, you've got mail. It was exciting. Someone had sent me an email. Usually it was one of my grandfather's. Maybe one of my buddies from church. It was great. I could send a note to my grandfather in Florida instantly without having to put something in the mail. And I didn't have to write it because I didn't particularly like writing and my handwriting was atrocious. Thank God for computers. Email truly enhanced our ability to communicate, as did cell phones and text messaging and social media and so on. Now, for better or worse... We live in an age of instant communication. We can critique it all we want, and yes, I know there are drawbacks to be sure. Certainly, it has been overused and abused, but generally speaking, society has greatly benefited from the ability to instantly communicate with each other. There was a time when you couldn't just pick up the phone and call your mom. There was a time when you couldn't just send a text or an email to tell someone, hey, I'm thinking about you or I'm praying for you. In the late 1800s, unless the sender and recipient lived in the same city, it would take weeks or even months to mail a letter. It wasn't until 1950 that the slight majority of homes in the U.S. had a telephone, and even then there were were a great deal of limitations to its use. Today we have more access to communication than any generation in history, and yet we find ourselves even more discontent the more access we have. Beloved, I think there's a greater spiritual issue in play here. As humans, we long to be connected. We long to be connected uh, with other humans. We, We long to be connected to something bigger than ourselves. And yet we aren't satisfied with the the progress in technological communication. Why is this? 
Because being able to connect over an, over an iPhone does not solve our greatest need. Being able to send an email or a text message or, or have thousands and thousands of friends on Facebook isn't enough to solve our greatest need. Why do we long for, for connection? Because we know ultimately that we have a greater disconnection elsewhere. You see, the greatest human problem in life is not hunger. It's not clean water. It's not access to 5G internet. The greatest human problem is separation from the God who created us. And the greatest need is to be reconciled to Him. That is why we're here this morning, is it not? We worship God this morning because He made a way through Jesus for us to be reconciled to Him. That's the good news of the gospel, the good news of the gospel that we uh, rehearsed even last week, thinking on the topic of evangelism. The good news of the gospel teaches us that God is the creator of all things, that he is perfectly holy, worthy of all worship, and that he will punish sin. The gospel teaches us that we are sinful by nature, that by nature, all people are alienated from God, hostile to God and subject to the wrath of God. And at this point, it all sounds like bad news, but the good news is that Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, lived a sinless life, died on the cross to bear God's wrath in the place of all who would believe in him and rose from the grave in order to give his people eternal life. And then in response to this good news, God calls everyone everywhere to repent of their sin and trust in Christ in order to be saved. I hope that sounds familiar to you. The gospel tells us the truth about God, about man, about Christ and our response to this truth. And it is through the gospel that we are reconciled to God, that we are adopted as children and no longer enemies of God at odds with our creator. It is through the gospel that we now have full, unfettered access to God. This morning, as we continue contemplating various disciplines of grace, we're going to spend our time considering the discipline of prayer and the access that it gives us to the God of all creation. Now, you may be here this morning and and you're a visitor. Maybe you're not even a Christian. And you may be tempted to ask, how does this pertain to me? Why should I care about prayer? And the answer, friend, is this, that if you're not a Christian, then the God of the universe is under no obligation to hear your prayer. But for those whom he has saved through his gospel, God has joyfully obligated himself to hear the prayers of his child. So whether you recognize it or not, you want what we're going to talk about this morning to be true, because without it, you don't have access to the creator of the universe. You don't have access to your creator. We're going to consider two passages of Scripture this morning. Our first passage is going to come from the New Testament book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16. And then we're going to also look this morning at Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. This is a passage famously titled, The Lord's Prayer. So please find both texts. Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16, and then Matthew 6, 5 through 15. We're going to look at both texts. 
will take us about an hour and a half each. I'm kidding. Maybe not. We'll see. Hebrews chapter 4, Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to go ahead and read both of these texts for us this morning. We're going to start in Hebrews chapter 4. Hear now the word of God. For the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen? Hebrews 4, beginning in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father... But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We'll add to the reading of your word by giving us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to know, and hearts to understand. Amen. Prayer is the ultimate means by which we commune with God to grow in our relationship with Him and our ability to pray is fully dependent on Jesus. I want to provide you today with two arguments that I believe further explain our dependence on Jesus to even be able to pray. The first argument is this. This comes from Hebrews chapter 4. 14 through 16. The first argument is this. Jesus invites us to Jesus invites us to pray. Up to this point, the author of Hebrews has been laying the groundwork for full understanding of Christ's supremacy. Now remember, the, the, the book of Hebrews is actually a sermon that is preached to a What we're going to read about in this sermon is not solely individualistic instruction. It is a theological instruction and application that was delivered for the whole congregation. That's going to be important as we dig deeper into the discipline of prayer. So the author of Hebrews, the the preacher of this sermon, if you will, argues in chapter 1 that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. 
And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than than theirs. The preacher argues explicitly in chapter 1 that Jesus, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is God, that his throne is forever and ever, and that Jesus always has been, and that he himself laid the foundation of the earth from the beginning. So Hebrews chapter 1 is building this, this framework of Jesus being superior, that he is supreme. Then chapter 2, the author argues uh, that Jesus is the founder of our salvation. Everything is in subjection to Jesus. However, uh, uh, the author uh, of Hebrews writes in verse 9 and 10, but we see him who was for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might take death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of salvation perfect through suffering. And then the author continues in verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is, all, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So Jesus is the founder of our salvation. He had to become like us in order to save us. And that's exactly what he did. Now, chapter 3 of Hebrews then compares Jesus and Moses, demonstrating that Moses was faithful as God's servant, but he was not enough. The law that God brought through Moses could not bring salvation, but it was instead meant to show us our need for God. But Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus was faithful as God's son, and he is over God's house, a house we are invited into if we indeed hold fast to our confidence and hope, that is, Jesus. And it is in this house of God, through Jesus, that the author of Hebrews contends that the people of God find rest. That's how chapter 3 ends and then chapter 4 begins. God has invited His people to enter into His Sabbath rest, an eternal rest where we are spared from God's wrath And instead, we get to enjoy his presence forever. That brings us to the end of chapter four. Since then, since everything the author has written up to this point is true, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. You'll notice that the author of Hebrews doesn't say that we have a high priest. He says that we have a great high priest. According to one commentator, quote, the use of the adjective great here signifies that Jesus belongs to an entirely different priesthood from Aaron's line, and thus his heavenly status and access to God are unique, end quote. See, unlike Aaron... 
That's Moses' brother who had to regularly go into the holy place and sacrifice on behalf of Israel for their sin. Jesus himself stood as the sacrifice, placing him in a category all his own, doing what no one else could do. While Aaron offered sacrifice for the people and had to do clearly, Jesus was the sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice, and through him payment was made in full. This is why he is our great high priest. He is even superior to the high priest, to use the language of Hebrews 1. Because we have a great high priest, We have a sufficient sacrifice. Through His death and resurrection, we are saved. So because we have a great high priest, the author and the preacher of this New Testament epistle implores the congregation to hold fast to their confession of faith in Christ. Because we have salvation, hold on to your faith. Hold fast to it. Furthermore, we hold fast to our confession of faith Because in Christ, we have a high priest who sympathizes with us in our weakness, having been tempted as we are, yet he did not sin. Kind of paint the picture for you. Jesus doesn't just sit in heaven with his arms folded and say, do better. He shows us sympathy. And we're told elsewhere in Scripture that He is actually advocating and interceding for us on our behalf. And this is an an active role that He has as the King of all the world. Romans 8.34 tells us Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What does it mean that Jesus intercedes on our behalf? Romans 8.36 tells us that the Spirit intercedes for us because of our weakness and we don't know what to pray. But in verse 34, we're told that Jesus, who was crucified and now raised, intercedes for us in light of possible condemnation. Jesus acts as our advocate before the Father, whose right hand He is seated by. And He pleads for us by His sufficient atoning sacrifice so that now those who trust in Him have no condemnation. No one can bring a charge against God's elect so severe that it would change our salvation status. Because God is the one who justifies and Christ is intervening on our behalf as our advocate who sympathizes with our sinful weakness. From His throne, Jesus intercedes and advocates on our behalf. As we continue to struggle with our sin, He reminds the Father of His own mercy towards those whom He the Father has given to Jesus the Son. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who sympathizes with our weakness and advocates on our behalf, When we are weak, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because we have a great high priest, we are now invited to draw near to God's throne. 
Beloved, this has not always been the case. In fact, later on in Hebrews, the preacher actually addresses the veil that separated the holy of holies, the the earthly dwelling place of God's presence from the rest of the temple that we, we see throughout the Old Testament. This veil signified that man was separated from God by sin. It was only the high priest who was permitted to pass beyond the veil once each year. The high priest couldn't just go in there whenever he wanted. Once a year, he would enter God's presence for all of Israel and make atonement for their sins. But we're told in Luke's gospel account, we're told in chapter 23, that when Jesus was crucified, the veil of the temple was torn in two, signifying what Hebrews chapter 10 describes as a new and living way. Through Jesus' body, we are no longer separated by a veil. We are brought into the presence of God through Jesus' body given as a sacrifice for us. You and I get to draw near to the throne of God because of Jesus. We now have access to God. We have the opportunity to have a relationship with God. We have been invited to draw near to the throne. We have been invited to into communion, a, a communal relationship with God because of Jesus. And as we have been invited to draw near to the throne, we have been invited to pray. We've been invited to make our requests known to God, to to talk with our Father in heaven through Jesus, our great high priest. Do, Do you see just how significant it is that we have access to God? And not, and not access to God like an athlete gives access to their fans at a meet and greet when they, they sign a few autographs and converse with you for maybe three minutes. And then you walk away and you tell your friends, yeah, I got to, got to have a conversation with so and so. I got to meet them. We are talking about the type of access a parent gives their child to tell them about their day when the parent gets home from work. As a vocational pastor, I spend a good deal of time meeting and talking with people. So Christian, my wife, she she often knows when I'm in a meeting with someone and if there's an update that I need to be aware of, maybe not something I need to know right away, uh, just maybe here, here's, here's a question I have or something she needs me to pick up from the store on the way home from dinner, she'll just send a text. It's the beauty of the communication, the age that we live in. Sometimes she might even forget that I'm in a meeting and she might call, but I don't answer. Usually she's aware of my schedule. If she's calling, it's probably in an emergency, but it's not terribly uncommon for her to call and just maybe not remember that I'm in the middle of a meeting. So I'll ignore that first call. And it's okay for me to do that because we have a rule that if she calls my phone twice, I'm going to drop whatever I'm doing and answer that phone call. It's a code for me to know that there's an emergency and she needs me that instant. Why do I do this? Because she's my wife. She's my closest relationship on this earth and there is nothing I won't do for her. And the same goes for my children. Not everyone has this type of access to me. The cashier at Lowe's Foods and I are probably not on a first name basis. 
We should be. I'm there enough. <laughs> but, but I think we understand that not everyone, not everyone in the world has this same type of access to us individually. There's different degrees of relationship. But my wife and children have unfettered, unquestioned VIP access to this guy right here. Because of their position as my wife and my children. Beloved, this is the type of access that we are talking about having to God. He has made us His children and we have access to Him as our Father. He's not distant. He is a father. Tim Keller described it this way, quote, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. We have been invited to draw near to God. We have been invited to commune with him, to, to have a relationship with the Lord of all creation. We have been invited to pray. We've been invited to Talk with God our Father. We've been invited to draw near to Him. How do you get to know someone? You talk to them. There's a... No, I won't go off on that. That's that's not in the manuscript. That won't won't land right. But generally speaking, the way that we get to know each other is by having a conversation. You can't just sit in the room with someone and never talk to them and then be best friends. That doesn't happen. Part of growing in relationship is having those conversations, speaking to one another, getting to know one another. This is the type of relationship that God has invited us into. A relationship where we get to know who He is, and even more importantly, He knows us by name. This is glorious. He has invited us to draw near His throne. He has invited us to pray. To have a relationship with the God of the universe. Jesus invites us to pray. That's the first argument I want to present you with this morning. But we're going to continue and we're going to jump over to Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. And we're going to find find our second argument. And that's that Jesus instructs us how to pray. Jesus instructs us how to pray. He invites us to pray. He instructs us how to pray. And in Matthew 6, 5, it's actually expected that we will pray. Jesus begins that section and says, when you pray, it's expected. This text in Matthew's gospel account gives us instruction on prayer. And through this instruction, we actually have further definition on what prayer is. I want to give us four things this morning that prayer is. Now, the list can go Go on, this isn't exhaustive. But from this text, four things that I believe we clearly see in Jesus' instruction on prayer here in Matthew chapter 6. Four things that prayer is. The first is that prayer is worship. Prayer is worship. I think we see this in a couple of ways in Jesus' instruction. First, I think we see this in Jesus' warning Not to be like the hypocrites who stand in the streets for everyone to see just how holy they are. Prayer is not about you getting the attention of others. The focal point of our prayers is God. He is worthy to be prayed to. 
And prayer is ultimately about him. So much so that Jesus says, don't pray like the hypocrites where it's all about them, but go pray in secret and the God who hears your prayer will reward you in secret. Meaning that that loud attention getting prayers don't somehow earn you attention or reward from God. Your access to God that you have in prayer isn't somehow on another level than someone else. We collectively, Hebrews 4, have been invited to draw near the throne. Let us draw near the throne of grace. Jesus' language here doesn't indicate, I'll say this, some restriction that prayer is only meant to be private and not included in a corporate gathering like we have this morning. What what it's meant to do is help us focus on what prayer is, who it's directed to, and what it's about. Now, if we are left with any question about the private versus the corporate, Acts 2.42 offers further clarity when we are told that the gathered assembly of Christians came together and they devoted themselves to fellowship, the preaching of God's word, the breaking of bread, and what? Prayer. The warning Jesus is giving here doesn't restrict prayer from our corporate gathering. It clarifies the focus and object of our prayers. It also clarifies that one Christian doesn't have more access than another. That's the point of, that's the point in praying in secret. The warning here doesn't mean that, that we don't pray corporately. It means we understand our position in praying to the Father. Prayer is first and foremost an act of worship. And this is seen in Jesus' warning that prayer isn't about you and it's not to be used for your own advancement. Prayer is an act of worship and this is actually seen in the content of Jesus' prayer. Look at verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think it's helpful to see the Lord's Prayer as a, as a structural outline of what prayer should contain. And in this case, we see prayer containing an acknowledgement of adoration and praise for who God is. Our Father in heaven, you are holy. We acknowledge this. God is holy. We praise Him for it. There's a recognition in this prayer that the, the, that as we come to God in prayer, we first and foremost start by recognizing that He is the only one worthy of us coming to prayer too. There's also a recognition of what God has done and is doing. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray, our prayers should include a worshipful recognition of who God is, And what God has done. Prayer is first and foremost worship. Secondly, prayer is communion. Prayer is communion, or if you want to put in parentheses, relationship. You'll notice that the word father is used four times. There is an intimacy to prayer where we as children are talking to our father in heaven. Prayer is not some rote incantation. Jesus warns against this in verse 7. Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. 
Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Jesus is telling us, you're talking to your Father who knows what you need before you ask. Big fancy words don't gain you anything. Saying the same thing over and over and over again doesn't gain you anything. You can't say it over and over again and pressure God into giving you whatever you think you want. Prayer is an intimate conversation with your, with our omniscient God who holds the universe in His hands. We aren't trying to persuade Him of anything. You're talking to your Father who has invited you to share with Him. He wants you to come to Him. He wants to bestow His grace and blessing on you. He invites us to draw near His throne so that we may find grace and mercy in our time of need. Through prayer, we commune with God and draw closer to the throne of grace. Prayer is communion. Number three, considering Jesus' instruction regarding the structure and contents of prayer, we see that prayer is supplication. Prayer is supplication. Plainly speaking, we have no business asking God for anything. We have no right. We have no standing in and of ourselves. Imagine if I randomly found Chef uh, Gordon Ramsay's phone number and I called him and I told him, you need to come make me dinner. Do you think that would go well? If you've seen his TV shows, I think it's doubtful at best. Plainly speaking, we have no business asking God for anything. And yet... Not only do I have access to God, He has invited me to make my request known to Him. And not only that, He already knows what I need. Prayer is an opportunity to humble ourselves before God as needy, joyful, thankful beggars who trust that our kind, gracious, and generous Father will meet every need we have. I'm going to get to a fairly significant caveat in a minute. But for now, I want us to feel the awesome weight of Jesus telling us to ask God for something so simple as our daily bread and as significant as the forgiveness of our sins. Through prayer... We come before the God of all the universe and we get to tell him what we need. And Jesus actually tells us in the next chapter of Matthew, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? How awesome is this? God wants His children to come to Him in prayer and ask Him for what what they need because He is a generous Father who takes great joy in giving His children good gifts. May I also add that I think there's an implicit thankfulness amidst supplication, even if it isn't as explicit in this text. With prayer being supplication, I think the accompanying concept in prayer is thanksgiving. So we don't only make our requests known to God, we thank Him for the unending ways He answers prayer and provides for His children. 
Finally, prayer is confession. Prayer is confession. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Part of drawing near to the throne to receive mercy and grace in our time of need is confessing and acknowledging the ways that we have failed to obey God and embracing the promise that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Beloved, we don't confess our sins to try and persuade God to forgive us. We don't confess our sins hoping that, that maybe He will forgive us. We confess our sins because He is faithful and He is just to forgive us and cleanse us. Why do we do this? Because the King has instructed us to do so. This is why we pray. The King who sits on His throne, who rules over all of creation, who is making, uh, who is preparing His bride, uh, the, the church, His body to be a, uh, to be blameless before the Father, that King has invited us to pray And He has instructed us to pray. And the reason that we have this access is because He stood in our place. He took the wrath of God on our behalf. He died for the forgiveness of our sins. And He rose to life again for our justification. So when we come to Him in confession... We're not coming to convince Him. We're not coming hoping that He will. We're coming in confidence... To say, God, I'm confessing my sin because I know that you have already forgiven me because you are faithful and just. Prayer is confession. Jesus has invited us to pray. Jesus has instructed us to pray. I think this is proven in Hebrews chapter 4 and in Matthew chapter 6. Now, I hope that you have been helped in your understanding of prayer by both of these texts. And as we narrow this down, I want to highlight a few brief points to help codify our doctrine of prayer. I want to offer a few tangible points of, of doctrine, of just help building our, our, our doctrinal framework of prayer. And then I want to offer a few tangible points of application for us. So to codify our doctrine of prayer, number one, prayer is essential to the Christian life. Prayer is essential to the Christian life. Prayer is not an optional discipline. Prayer is commanded. Prayer is expected. Again, when you pray. In fact, I think we can go so far as to say there is no such thing as a prayerless Christian. Prayer is needed. We need the spiritual discipline of prayer. Just like how we need to be able to talk with our our spouse, our parents, our friends, our pastors, our fellow church members, we need communion with God. It's a need, it's not an option. Quote, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. End quote. 
That was either Martin Luther or Martin Luther King Jr. If you do a Google search, it's attributed to both of them. Either way, I think the statement is true. To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Prayer is essential to the Christian life. Without it, can we really say that we belong to Jesus? Number two, prayer teaches us dependence on God. Prayer teaches us dependence on God. Through prayer, we are humbled and taught that we are not our own providers. We don't provide our own salvation. We don't provide our own daily bread. We can't provide the forgiveness of our sins. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. We don't provide ourselves anything. We are fully dependent on God for everything. And prayer teaches us to embrace that dependence. Let me offer us this challenge, particularly to our men. Ladies, if this also applies to you, I offer you this challenge. I know that as a man, I am prone to think and struggle in this way. So are you ready? When you get up to go to work tomorrow, you need to remember when you work hard to earn a paycheck, you need to remember that you are not the one providing for yourself. How do you keep this in front of you? Might you consider praying something like this? God, as I go to work today, I'm working because I know that every provision comes from you and I am not the ultimate provider for my family. So please meet our needs and bless the work of my hands because I know that if you don't, my work is in vain and I cannot give good gifts like you. Prayer teaches us to depend on God It teaches us to embrace that dependence. We already depend on God whether we acknowledge it or not. But prayer teaches us to willingly and gratefully acknowledge our dependence on God for every provision we need. Prayer helps us understand God's providence. It helps us understand His sovereignty. It helps us understand His kindness to us because we are submitting ourselves to Him through prayer. Number three. Prayer aligns our desires with God's will. Prayer aligns our desires with God's will. I said a moment ago there would be a caveat. Here it is. 1 John 5, 13 through 15. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and this is the confidence that we have towards Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Anything we ask of God, he will do so long as we ask according to his will. This is the catch, the caveat, if you will. And it is a reminder to us that we are not in charge, that God is. God is not a a genie in a bottle. He's not a button that we press to make life easy. He gives good gifts to His children because He really does know best. So as we ask God, as we, which we're, we are invited to do so, 
we ask according to His will, not our own. Now you may ask the question, how do I know if I'm praying God's will? Let me encourage you to listen to what God has said in His revealed Word to us, the Bible. Pastor John is actually going to share with us next week about uh, the discipline of God's Word or studying God's Word or, or marinating in and, and knowing God's Word. I don't know how he's going to phrase it, but the discipline of the Bible, if you will. So I don't want to take too much of his thunder, but suffice it to say, God has spoken. If you want to hear God speak, read your Bible. If you want to hear God speak audibly, read your Bible out loud. God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness in His Word. And if we pray according to His Word, our prayers are going to align our will with His. It's going to align our desires with His. Now, what are a few examples of this, you may ask? James 1.5, if, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Colossians 1, 9-13, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will, to strengthen you with all power according to His glorious might, so that you might have great endurance and patience. These are just two small, short examples of inspired prayers that if we pray them, God has promised to answer them. Jesus' words in Matthew 6, your kingdom come, your will be done. Prayer is an opportunity to align our hearts and our desires with the heart of the Father. Which, of course, goes back to, to teaching us that we are entirely dependent on God and that we need to pray. So that segues us to some application. It's probably pretty simple. What's the application from this sermon? Pray. Probably pretty simple. We could probably end there, but I want to try to make it a little bit more tangible. So let's let's start again like we began with the unbeliever in the room. If you are not a Christian, I'll say it again, God is under no obligation to hear your prayers. If you're not a Christian, you've just sat through an entire message on prayer and the access God gives to His children through prayer, and none of it applies to you. If you are not a Christian, you have no right or standing to draw near to the throne of grace. So what is the application for you? The application is simple. Repent and believe in the gospel and be made a child of God who is given access to the Father. Where should you start? Might I invite you to pray? Cry out to God, ask Him to save you, and He will because He has promised to save all who call upon His name. And He is faithful and just to do exactly what He says. Now for what I hope is the majority of us, known affectionately by God as the saints of Emmanuel Bible Church, for the Christian, God has joyfully obligated Himself to hear the prayers of His child. And if this doesn't excite you, if it doesn't get, crank your tractor, you may need to consider examining your own heart and confession of faith. If it doesn't excite you that God has said, come to me, talk to me, pray, draw near, draw close to me, then you might need to consider examining your own heart and confession of faith. 
I said a minute ago that there is no such thing as a prayerless Christian. That's just a deceptive word for an unregenerate sinner. The God of the universe has given you unfettered, unquestioned access to Him, and you're not going to take advantage of this access? If you could sit down and have a conversation over dinner with anyone who ever lived, would we not take that opportunity? I know I would. To be able to sit down with the likes of of R.C. Sproul or Charles Spurgeon, or maybe to not be a spiritual and sit down with former catcher of the Atlanta Braves, Brian McCann. And then, after we have dinner, they're going to give me their personal cell phone and I can call them anytime I want it. I'd probably give my left arm for an opportunity like that. I imagine all of us have an answer like this. But the God of the universe gives us unlimited access to Him and we maybe pray at dinner if we remember. The Father has given access to His children and we're just going to ignore Him? Think about it this way. A child in a healthy relationship with their parents will talk their parents' ear off and the parent joyfully listens to all that is going on in the heart and mind of their child. If you're a parent, I think you probably understand this. Children, you may be able to resonate with this. Isn't it wonderful to be able to tell your mom or your dad or maybe your grandparents something funny that happened at school? Isn't it fun to be able to, to tell them what you want for Christmas? Isn't it, isn't it great when they laugh at a joke that you made up? Isn't it comforting to know that you can wake up your mom or your dad or whoever may care for you in the middle of the night because you had a bad dream? That's the access that God gives His children. Now maybe your experience isn't always like this. Children, what about the time you're alone and mom and dad aren't there? Do you know what can give you hope in times of loneliness and fear? You have a heavenly Father who invites you to talk to Him. Beloved, pray. But let us not just pray individually. Let us pray together as a church family. Again, the the, the book of Hebrews is a sermon to a congregation where they are instructed together to draw near to the throne. Let us draw near to the throne of grace. We have a corporate prayer time every Sunday morning. Beloved, if you are not prioritizing this gathering, let me admonish you this morning that you are missing out on a tangible grace that God has given you to pray collectively with the body of Christ. So if you weren't here this morning for our prayer time, prioritize it and be here next week. Additionally, we have a big God who can do big things. And we want to pray for God to do big things this year in the life of Emmanuel Bible Church. What are, what are ways that we as a church are praying this year? What are we praying for? I want to give you just a few things that we are collectively praying for and I want to keep these things in front of you. We are praying that God would send more from our number to take the gospel to the nations. We just commissioned one of our own. We are praying that God will do this again. We are praying that God would raise you up 
And I don't know who that's directed to, but we are praying that God would use you, that He would send you into the harvest. We aren't just praying for more partnerships, though we are praying for more partnerships, but we are specifically praying for more of our number to do exactly what Jared and Lori just did. Here's something else we are praying for. We are praying that God would save people this year through our number here at EBC. The very thing we talked about last week in evangelism, the very thing we've considered uh, through the month of December and have just continued on in January, we are praying that God wouldn't just bring Christians who moved to Greenville to Emmanuel, we are praying that God would use you to save your neighbor, your coworker, your spouse, your children, we are praying that God would save and we are praying it with confidence because He is a God who saves. So let's pray that God would save through EBC. I said last week, God's going to save people. He is either going to save people through you or in spite of you. We are praying that God would save people through us this year, not in spite of us. Here's something else we're praying for. Brad did this just a few moments ago. We are praying for a just and generous settlement from the state of South Carolina for the Build a Better Butler Road project. You know, the first two things I said are, they probably come across as very spiritual. We're supposed to pray for God to save. We're supposed to pray for uh, missionaries to go. This one maybe doesn't feel as spiritual. Yet, God wants us to ask Him for it. He wants us to come before Him and ask Him for the forgiveness of our sins, and He wants us to ask Him for our daily bread. God wants us to ask Him for a just and generous settlement because He already knows what we need. And He wants to give generously and graciously to His children. So, something we are praying for this year, something that is in the works, is we are praying for a generous settlement from the state of South Carolina as they look at expanding Butler Road and taking some of our land, some of our parking lot. We ask God to work. We trust that He will. So in, in summary, the application really is pray. Let's pray. God has invited us to pray. So you need to pray, and I need to pray, and we need to pray. The King has invited us to pray. He has instructed us how to pray. We get to pray. The God of the universe hears your prayers. The God of the universe hears my prayers. He hears our prayers. How glorious is this truth. Therefore, let us boldly approach His throne. He gladly and joyfully welcomes us.